iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, is Cristiano Ronaldo papering over cracks at Manchester United? Why are Chelsea so disjointed? Manchester City are happy despite defeat. And how the mighty have fallen in Spain. This is the game. Well, what a week it's been in the Champions League. Shock results and shock performances. We're going to look at all the English side's games. We'll start with Wednesday night before we take a look back to Tuesday and a little peek ahead as well to the weekend's Premier League action. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, joined by Ian Hawkey and Gregor Robertson of The Times today. Gentlemen, how are you? Very well, Hugh. Good, thanks, Hugh. Good, good, good. Let's start with the game in Turin then. A win for Juventus over the defending European champions, Chelsea, who had 74% possession on the night, 16 shots, but only one on target. I wonder whether they were woeful or whether this was a defensive masterclass from Juventus. Ian, I'll start from you. What was it? Where was the balance? Uh, uh, well, uh, Juventus, I thought, defended extremely well and most unlike themselves so far this season. I thought Matthias de Ligt was good. Leo Bonucci was Leo Bonucci. And uh, 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 quite a makeshift Juventus team, you know, looked really on on top of things and, and looks as if they, they knew their plan. I think it was... Um, yeah, I think it was a bit of an eye opener, both for anyone who's watched Juventus a bit this season, and and possibly anyone who's been watching and purring over Chelsea for most of the last last two months. Um, yeah, a, a, a really engrossing Champions League game. I thought. What was so eye opening for you about Chelsea in particular? They didn't come up with solutions. You know, the the, the, the thing that Thomas Tuchel has been really good at is seeing what isn't working and and solving it. You know, to put it uh, broadly and rather simply. And um, yeah, I think he got uh, he got out cunninged by Max Allegri overall. Gregor, what did you think about Mason Mount? being out of the game. He's missed the last couple of games, in fact. But when Ian talks about them not finding a solution, they have been a little bit more disjointed. They didn't get anything going in attack against Manchester City. You know, they, they didn't seem to have that comfort with Hakim Ziyech and Kai Havertz with Romelu Lukaku. There's no chemistry there yet. But I think Mason Mount almost makes them tick. How much do they miss him? Yeah, very much so. It's often when a player's absent, that's when you kind of, you recognise that. Most of, there's a reason why he played more more games for Chelsea than any other player last season. Why, no matter who the manager's been, he's been, they've trusted him and, and played him. And I think in the, I was reading in, in the last 180 minutes, they've only, well, obviously they've not scored and they've only had one shot on target. The main thing is that Lukaku's looked kind of isolated and a little bit, he's cut a bit of a frustrated 
frustrated figure. I mean, part of this is to do with the quality of the opposition, and I, I agree with Ian. I think Juventus. They, there's a bit of the kind of Chelsea under Tuchel about them defensively. You know, they they covered space really well. They were very compact, really hard to break down. So you have to give Juventus a lot of credit, but. At the same time, Lukaku was kind of waving his arms around in the second half. He was wanting deliveries played in when they weren't. And Ziyech and Havertz were both pretty ineffective, I think, in that kind of space, trying to link the midfield and attack. I think you have to give Juventus credit, but I think from Chelsea's point of view, the sooner they can get Mount back, the better. This is a blip. I expect them to to, to bounce back very quickly. On Lukaku, though, I, look, there's part of me that thinks we're, we're seeing some things about him. I know he cut a frustrated figure. But we're seeing some things about him that were said about him when he was at Manchester United, maybe not into Milan, but lack of vision, lack of touch, maybe a lack of movement at times. Obviously, he's far fitter than he was at Manchester United. Is any of that fair for you, Gregor? I don't, I really don't buy it. I feel that there's very few players who, you know, the criticism emerges quite so quickly about as Lukaku um, after a few games without a goal. I think... I think a lot of the issues, you know, a lot of the reason we're seeing Lukaku look frustrated is because of the kind of disjointedness of the team and what, you know, the kind of attacking play around them. He, you know, he was, he was, he was billed as the kind of final piece in the jigsaw. You know, it looked like the jigsaw was a bit scrambled in the last couple of games. So, no, I, I, I think people are far too quick to, to cast aspersions on of, of Lukaku's talents. I think he looked like he was often trying to pin one of the, one of the best central defenders in the world. Perhaps you could say you could have been looking to try and run and run off the shoulder a bit more, but there seemed to be too much space between him and the midfielder, whoever was going to be delivering those passes. Again, the wing-backs weren't, weren't as effective as they have been for Chelsea, which has been one of their greatest strengths under Tuchel recently. So no, I, I certainly wouldn't lay, lay any of the blame at, at, at the door of Lukaku. It looks like they'll still go through as well in this group. You'd expect Chelsea to be one of the teams uh, who does qualify for the knockout stages, but not the result they wanted and some work to do for Thomas Tuchel, I think. Um, maybe a little bit of a wake-up haul, as Ian suggests as well, in terms of them being favourites in just about every competition. So many people saying that at the start of the season. Not their best week, it's got to be said. Let's talk about Manchester United next as well, because lots of people were saying that there were big things ahead for them this season. They needed Fergie time to beat Villarreal 2-1 at Old Trafford in the Champions League. Who else? Cristiano Ronaldo with a 95th minute winner. I've got to say, Gregor, Villarreal should have put this game to bed in the first half, shouldn't they? Absolutely. I thought they were excellent and <laughs> Bournemouth's Arnott Danjuma was, looked like a kind of absolute world beater against uh, Diego Dallo uh, down Man United's right. He was excellent, but Dallo wasn't. Uh, <laughs> just to put it kindly. Um, that back four in general just looked quite quite delicate. You know, Varane had a bit of a mistake in the first half. It could have very easily been punished. Tellez, not entirely sure defensively. Big fan of Bill Edgar's uh, start that Alex Tellez is the first Alex to score since Sir Alex left the club, though. <laughs> and it was a fine goal. But, you know, United were reliant upon a superb strike, just a moment like that. And then Set piece. Shoot. Yeah. Which, um, by the way, was a dive. Sorry, Mason Greenwood, but went down very easily. Delighted maybe. with it as a Manchester United fan. Fantastic finish. But from a Villarreal perspective, that's a goal that they, they probably should have stopped. Yeah. But as I say, that was... That was a brilliant strike. Then Cristiano Ronaldo at the death. It should not, you know, as the headline, I think, in in the Times today, it should not paper over the cracks. It's this was a pretty poor performance from Manchester United, and they were very, very fortunate to win. Uh, still, kind of 
you know, you don't want to sound like a broken record, but it still doesn't look right in midfield. McTominay with Pogba and Fernandez kind of around him, but he looked really exposed and there was big spells, long spells where Villarreal were kind of playing it around them with, with relative ease. So yeah, I think Man United were very fortunate. And I think, you know, you can't always rely on on these moments. I just don't think it's it's uh, it's going to last in the long term for Manchester United. So they need to they need to find a way of of breaking down opponents and and actually dominating the play a little better. Big questions about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, especially from Manchester United fans. You know that that performance had once again divided their fan base. His acumen as a coach being questioned once again. You know, so many people saying, you know, Emery is the better coach. You could see that on the night. He just didn't have the same talents in his team as, as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did, and then five substitutions helping a squad like Manchester United's as well. When you can throw on a Lingard, you can throw on a Cavani when you need a goal. But I do think some of those criticisms, Ian, are fair. And it's it's boring for podcast listeners to go back and back again and us to talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But performances like that with a squad like his make you start to think that he can't be the long-term. I say start to think. Remind you once again that he's probably not the long-term answer for Manchester United. What are you thinking? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I think that that, that to be outcoached by Unai Emery is, is, is no great criticism. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a really, really good coach. And... Uh, and better, more experienced managers than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have been outcoached by Unai Emery. Uh, but yeah, having said that, um, it, the, the the Champions League has not been very flattering to him so far, has it? There's substantial integration to do uh, this season. Varane, Sancho, uh, Ronaldo to an extent, I guess, or, or at least re- accustoming the team to playing around um, uh, Ronaldo. I wouldn't be inclined to get rid of him in the short term. He, you know, he's pretty clear about what what the target is, um, and I think he knows as well as as anybody that that given the the squad that he's got, um, he's got to he's got to win a trophy. I, you know, I quite like a, a lot about Solskjaer. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, listen, at least it's balance on the game podcast. You know, um, it's not all of his fault. I felt for Scott McTominay and and it's not all Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's fault. When I saw the the lineup, I thought Pogba would play alongside Scott McTominay. But the, the, the issue is... That even at halftime, I was like, right, he's he's got to make changes. They've been completely outplayed. Scott McTominay's totally isolated. He's not making the right angles to get on the ball. He's basically non-existent. You know, he's not doing anything. I wouldn't have taken him off, actually. I would have taken Jaden Sancho off. And yeah, I've got to say it, I would have put Fred on next to Scott McTominay just because it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter how you want to play. You've got to, you can only use the tools that you've got. And actually, I thought that would have given Manchester United more stability in the game. Um but it's going to be the story of their season. We're going to come back to their midfield again and again, so I can't labour it. But but if, if anyone thinks Man United are going to win the Champions League with this squad, as good as the players that they have, I mean, it was it was for me, it was, you know, as a Manchester United fan, you're watching once again, you're wincing, saying, we're not going to win the league. We're not going to win the Champions League playing like this, you know. And, and, and that's sad to think, you know, six or seven games into the season when you've got a squad with as many talented players as Manchester United do. Just on uh, McTominay, Fred, that midfield axis that's much maligned. I was reading this morning that Man United's win percentage with those two is 10% higher 
they score more goals, they concede fewer. So as much as it looks, you know, you look at that and you think, should that be a Manchester United midfield? It's it gives them it gives them that platform, and it just doesn't work all the time. Look, Fred has had some some stinkers <laughs> in his time in his time at Old Trafford, but it's probably the best option because it's, it doesn't work with Pogba alongside him there. And then just on on Solskjaer, you know, I, I I'm with Ian. I like I, I think I like him. I think he's a he seems like a good guy and he's kind of <laughs> he's got the connection to United he's, there's a lot of positive things you can say but it just comes back to that fundamental question is he the guy who's going to win the title with for Manchester United is he is he going to take them close to the Champions League kind of latter stages is he even going to win a trophy that's the question and so you can like him you can think he's making progress and that question still for me remains a no so I think eventually Man United have to make a decision about that. Uh, I'm sure we'll be analysing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer more before the end of the season. We'll see exactly what the Champions League holds as well. Um, but I do want to mention David De Gea's performance, Ian. It looks like he is getting somewhere back towards his best. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was talking about the extra work that he's put in during the summer as well. Um, he, he could be massive for Manchester United this season. Uh, yes, and uh, as you know, as he's been massive for them in 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 many seasons, he is a puzzle to Gea, isn't he? He's um, you know, he, he he quite understandably divides opinion because you can see his flaws, and you can you can sometimes see things that you think must be some sort of lapse of concentration. But there's you know, there's no questioning the the, the, the really high level of of natural ability, um, and. You know he's still he's still young enough to to have as a goalkeeper to have a long time ahead of him. So uh, uh, yeah, I mean it will be be interesting to see in the fullness of history how David de Gea is looked back on. I mean you know it could be as as one of the great United goalkeepers ever. But uh, uh, yeah, that, that 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 is an encouraging aspect of United's slightly patchy picture from the. From the early season is is David de Gea's form. Just finally on Manchester United, Gregor, it was still a very positive end to the game, especially inside Old Trafford. We hadn't had fans for a European game, I think, for eighteen months or so. You know, fans staying inside the ground. Viva Ronaldo! You know, the lift that he has given the club seems to continue. And a, a, a bit like Messi, who we'll speak about later. You know, peripheral for big parts of the games. But when the key moment came, he delivered. And that's why he's at Manchester United, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's why he and Messi are spoken about in such rarefied terms as they, you know, as as you say, there was moments where he's kind of taken a poor touch or he tried to tried to lay it to the side and there was, and he was, or he was robbed. You know, there was, he was pretty, pretty poor, in fact. I wouldn't even just say he was, you know, not involved in the game. I thought he was, it was a pretty poor performance up until that point, but and there was always they just always he always manages to produce a but when people are having these conversations, and he was there. It was a kind of a fairly average cross from Fred, I think it was, and he and you know managed to nod it down into. Uh, you know, some people may have just tried to put that right back across goal. He, it was like a very deliberate kind of little header into the path of Lingard, and Lingard did really well too. We have to give him credit to hold off the defender and lay it off. And yeah, there he was. So it, look, these these guys are the best, among the best who've ever lived for this reason. No matter what, they kind of they'll always find a way to influence a game. 
and Ronaldo did it again. And if Manchester United are going to have a chance in any of those main competitions this season, he is going to be key to it. We'll see if he can help lift their form as well in the coming weeks. That's Manchester United and Chelsea wrapped up. Up next, we'll talk Manchester City, who seem to be delighted with defeat and Liverpool keep marching on. Stay with us on the game. Well, the huge game of the week in the Champions League saw an Abu Dhabi versus Qatar derby as Paris Saint-Germain beat Manchester City by two goals to nil. The strange thing about this for me was the way in which it was sort of seen as a positive by Manchester City that they just just lost the Champions League group game by a couple of goals. They had 55% possession away from home against Paris Saint-Germain, 18 shots, compare that to just six for the hosts. But they were beaten by two goals to nil, Gregor. So what are they so pleased about? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I thought they played well. I think we have to say that. I think the, particularly in the first half, they largely dominated. I think, you know, this was a game between a team of individuals and a team that's kind of structured, coherent team. And the individuals won out on this occasion. Well, we know why that is. Um, you know, two moments to say the game. And that can happen. I think City played pretty well you know as the stats show I think even XG shows it was 1.9 to 0.8 they had by far the better chances the Sterlings and Silvers double miss that was a that was a huge moment in the game but there was a lot of positives I thought Cancelo was really good again some of his some of his kind of passes threaded between there was one right to the back stick for Silva that was cut out brilliantly Grealish Cronin he looks very much at home in the Champions League even though he's playing against uh, an elite defender in Hakimi I think there were positives to take you just have to look at the first goal was kind of Mbappe there's no one better at skipping beyond a defender there's that moment of explosive pace and, and getting to the byline and cutting cutting the ball back and even then it was a bit of kind of misfortune City had a lot of players around the six yard box it managed to find its way through to Gay and he finished well and then the second goal was still a maestro doing what he does best after doing very little for most of the earlier <laughs> 70 odd minutes so I wouldn't be too down if I was a City fan I think if I was looking forward in the Champions League I would rather be Manchester City than PSG why? Just because of that one performance? No, no, because of the the fact that they are... Uh, at the moment, they're, they're smashing teams five or six or they're struggling to break them down. That's the only worry. And I know you've said many times they need someone in the, in the box to finish chances and that was proven again. But I think more often than not, a team with, with cities, as I say, coherent play and they look like a team will win more games than lose. And I think PSG are, live, are standing on fairly... It's a, it's a fragile kind of plan to have such a divide between the midfield and the defensive seven and the front three who you say go on guys win us a game because they might not do it every week Ian what do, you, what do you think then would you rather be Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain at this point in time in the Champions League I'd be even more pleased to be PSG because what they don't do very often is 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 smash teams recently by five or six. You know they 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 win quite narrowly even in in France, which is probably a better league than some people make out. So uh, I think that was genuinely a, a a statement performance for them. Obviously, a reverse of the semi final, and I, I think Pochettino will be very pleased that PSG held their own in midfield. I think 
know, Verratti was 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 outstanding against uh, uh, you know a City team and that who tend to dominate that territory. I, I wouldn't say it's a threshold. I mean, it's obviously a threshold because Messi scored for the first time and the front three have actually combined. But I think the, the global view will be that um, yeah, this is uh, this is the kind of progress we uh, we really want. To- I'm not going to labour my argument about Manchester City needing someone to score in the penalty area but you are right in saying Gregor (laughs) it was proven once again I'm not not going to because I'm sure we're going to come back to this with Manchester City throughout the season the one thing they don't have a bit like Manchester United who we discussed a little bit earlier on is Messi or Ronaldo someone who can even though they've got so many great players, you know, that elite talent, that one of the greatest of all time talents, someone who can, and by the way, I didn't even notice because I turned the game on after about 90 seconds and I hadn't seen the lineups. I genuinely, I noticed Lionel Messi in the 45th minute, just before half time. I was like, oh, oh, Messi's playing. <laughs> genuinely couldn't believe it, but he shows once again why, in my opinion, he's the greatest of all times with a stunning goal. Ian, I just want to come back to what Gregor said. If that is to be the mould for Paris Saint-Germain to wait for a Messi, a Neymar and Mbappe to do something incredible, can they really win the Champions League like that? Um, well, I think I think if Mbappe continues to play as he has for the last few weeks, uh, yes, because you don't you don't really have to wait for Mbappe for very long to 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 do something match winning either creatively or or as a finisher so provided he stays fit and he stays content which is something to watch in his case they have the best equipment up front i think there is quite a lot of positive feeling around uh, psg now and and yeah as long as i think as long as mbappe is 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 on board buying into the project for at least till the end of the season and staying fit yeah i think they I think I think they they do have that the near near complete jigsaw. There's no doubt. There's a lot of positive feeling. I mean, the the moment Messi's Messi's goal hit the back of the net, you kind of it was like a wow moment, wasn't it? That was his arrival, and I think everyone there kind of acknowledged that. And it was quite, you know, that was a big big moment. But you know, as, as you, you know, as you say, you reference <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo, someone who can win a game, Messi who can win a game. Sure, PSG have got a few of those players, but. I just, I, I would still rather be a team like Manchester City who have got 11 players playing in tandem, uh, plus another four or five in the bench who could come in and do that as well. I would rather have that in my arsenal than be so reliant on whether Messi can produce a moment of magic. Let's see if they buy a striker in January then, Gregor. Um, just on that though, Ian, that liftoff moment Gregor referred to, for Lionel Messi at Paris Saint-Germain, how big a moment was that goal? Oh, oh, I think I, I think hugely important, and also for Messi himself. You know, I think that's uh, you know he is under enormous pressure. He needs to he needs to show that he can be the same footballer as another club. So I, th- I think more important for than, than for the club PSG and for for Pochettino and for the fans is it's for Messi himself to believe you know that that it's still there and this and and he's you know he's able to build the right relationships with the likes of Mbappe um, because that you know that that's the that's the part of the magic triangle that 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 needs to be explored. He's played with Neymar for four years before they really like each other. He hasn't played with um, Mbappe before, and and you know that's the link that uh, that needs to be strong and needs to be built. So 
So I think all around, you know, dissecting that goal, I think I think that's a really important moment for, for the player himself. Uh, we will see if Lionel Messi continues in the same vein for Paris Saint-Germain and whether City can start putting the ball in the back of the net when it really counts. I still think that's an issue. But, um, but yeah, I will come back to it. As you know, I like to labour my points on the game podcast. Let's move on, though, to a team who didn't really labour in their match away in Portugal. Liverpool went to Porto and grabbed an impressive 5-1 victory. Both Mohamed Salah and Roberto Firmino both scoring twice. Pretty irresistible again, you've got to say, from Jurgen Klopp's team. And a certain young English midfielder, Gregor, Curtis Jones, with a fantastic performance as well, reminding everyone that there are many more young English talents coming through, not just the ones who went to the Euros. Yeah, he was outstanding. You know, a big influence against against Brentford as well last week. So, you know, when Harvey Elliott was the was the player who was who was taking that that position in midfield from the start of the season. Obviously, his injury was was a was a huge blow. But when you've got when you've got uh, Jones coming through, he's definitely softened softened the blow so far. And he was he was brilliant. He's very direct in everything he does. Very kind of positive and you know willing to take the kind of the responsibility on the pitch I think to to try and make things happen despite playing in a team with so many so many huge stars you know I think he could have a really big season for for Liverpool and and that was an area of the pitch you know we said that Fabinho and, and Thiago kind of trying to form in a decent partnership now but Jones I think Jones is that extra player in midfield after Wijnaldum's left that's they're still like in a position to be won there and I think he's he's making a big case for it so far uh, Ian what do you think about Roberto Firmino versus Diogo Jota Firmino got a couple of goals off the bench but Jota started the match um, alongside Mane and Firmino which is a position of course very familiar for Roberto Firmino but does Jota add an extra dimension that means he should be starting ahead of Firmino now that he's coming back to, to form? Yeah, yeah. I, I think possibly that I thought you were going to ask um, about any Liverpool striker against the poor Porto goalkeeper Diogo Costa, which, um, <laughs> who, who, who did uh, who did huge favours for for everybody up against him. Um, yeah, no, he yeah he does do something very distinct from Firmino, and it's it. I guess it's a a strength to have the different options. I don't know about the rest of you, but I get the very strong instinct that at the moment Jota is is in the ascendancy, and Firmino is going to have to, you know, fight harder for his place probably than he has for uh, a number of years. Um, but you know, he's still he's he's a very very poised, experienced, unselfish guy to have in your front three, isn't he? And and, and he showed that uh, the other night. It would be. Um, be interesting to know. I, I think they wouldn't divulge it willingly. What um, Salah and, and Sadio Mane thought about, you know, what what suits them best from from their very very established and very refined roles. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, the, the Klopp's three kings was pretty much the. You know, the reaction in the newspapers making out it was all about those three once again back together. But of course, I think you're right about Firmino having to fight for his place. There's something about the direct nature of Diogo Jota, the the work rate as well, that I think is working well for Liverpool right now. You mentioned the Porto goalkeeper. Ian, I've just got to ask you, can you remember a worse goalkeeping performance in the Champions League? I mean, it it seemed like he had a bet on Liverpool at times. I'm not going to curse the Spursions over him, (laughs) but... um, but my word, what was he up to? Yeah, I, 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 unfortunately, I think, yeah, you, you probably knew what the answer to that question was going to be. I can remember a worse performance involving a Liverpool goalkeeper in the Champions League <laughs> final point, yeah. not so long ago. <laughs> but, um, 
I was uh, wondering if you'd be you mentioned uh, Yeah, I mean, poor fellow. And, and I mean, you could tell, couldn't you, from the from the bench that uh, Sergio Ponsasau, his manager, was preparing an almighty bollocking. <laughs> well, Liverpool go marching on, as I say, in the Champions League. They have got a big match, though, in the Premier League this weekend. In the end, it's a top-of-the-table clash, in fact. They're hosting Manchester City. Who do you think the favourites are going into that match, Gregor? I think these games have been very notoriously hard to call, and they've been actually quite quite tight, a lot of them, in recent seasons. So I still think, although Manchester City lost this game, they were imperious against against Chelsea at the weekend. I still think that they probably are narrow favourites. There's no doubt Liverpool are getting back to very close to what we, we know as Liverpool at their very best. You know, that real kind of high press and high intensity dynamism, that, you know, that kind of, that's 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 Liverpool at their very best and they are getting close to that. So it should, it promised to be a an excellent game, but I, I would just narrowly favour favour City personally. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with Gregor on that. I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, Liverpool are clearly gaining some momentum, but in a sense, it's, it's still from a, a further way back in terms of getting their big players who were out for a long time right back to total sharpness. I mean, I'm not saying I'm detecting flaws in Van Dijk or whatever. I just think, as you said, we look in one place really for Manchester City's flaws, and that's you know the, the absence or, or makeshift or revolutionary idea instead of a centre forward. And I, 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 you know, I think um, City have looked very accomplished and, 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 and the win over Chelsea is, you know, that, that's, that, that's quite a statement to take into the domestic season. So marginally City. Where do you think this game will be won and lost finally on it, Gregor? Where, where's the key area for you? I believe Trent Alexander-Arnold will be out. So, you know, whether they, whether they stick with James Milner right back, that's potentially one week spot. Although, James Milner, no matter people say this, I've said this many times before, and he just he's uh, he's some specimen that guy. So I think it's going to be in the kind of transitions when City City notoriously is their their biggest weak spot is is in behind, and Liverpool that's kind of that can be their greatest strength. So I, I think I think City are more accomplished in terms of kind of breaking down teams when the you know the intricate movements are in the box. I said last week that I said saw it again in the first half, particularly against against PSG. The number of times that City's wide players and and Grealish in particular are just getting into that little channel down the down the sides of the box, the penalty box, and the, the danger that he poses there, uh, and if it's Mares on the other side, I just still think that City do that better than any other team, and it, and then even you know if it's De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva in the little inside channels where they can play work one twos, play the cross into the box, I, I think. I think that is City's biggest threat. So, I mean, there's lots of places you can see this game's won. I think oh, it's got to be, it's got to be whoever you know, whoever's pressing the with the most efficiency. I think in those kind of transitions, those turnovers of play. Great game this weekend, though, in the Premier League for us to react to on the game podcast on Monday. So don't miss us. We will be back then. Um, Still more to come today, though. Up next, we're going to continue our conversation about the Champions League and ask what's happened to the Spanish Giants. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, there were two very, very surprising results in the Champions League this week, and they concerned... Well, maybe one wasn't that surprising, but they both concern teams in Spain and the big names in Spain as well. Let's start with Real Madrid. They were beaten at home 2-1 by Sheriff Tiraspol. Sebastian Till with an absolutely fantastic last-minute strike for the Moldovan champions, who, by the way, have two wins from two in their maiden season in the Champions League. Ian, I've got to start with you on this one. Is this a surprising result for you? How surprising... And also, you know, I wondered about Real Madrid this season, whether they're in fact better than we thought they would be despite this result. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's clearly a, a, a surprising result by by any metric. The venue, the history, the prestige, all that. We were aware that that uh, Sheriff are quite useful. They won their first game against Shakhtar Donetsk, who were also quite useful. They are very well organised. They, they, they counter-attack really well. You've seen that in both their games so far. A little shout-out. Their magnet attacking left fullback, who's called Cristiano, not to be confused with the other Cristiano. But, uh, but yeah, he's really, he's really caught my eye during this Champions League. And, uh, but at the same time, Real Madrid can say, we didn't have an awful lot of luck that game. The, the, I think the, the goalkeeper, who was also magnificent, made 11 really good saves, the, the shots numbered into the 30s. So it, to answer your other question, Hugh, yes, uh, Real Madrid, are, are, they're not a, an utterly damaged force. They've played pretty well at times this season um, and their young players have, have, have played well, Vinicius in particular. Also, Eden Hazard has had his moments, which um, has not been something you could say for most of the last two seasons. So I, I don't think this is, um, this is a very embarrassing result for Real Madrid, but, um, but I don't think it's a... A catastrophe. Now, I've seen mutterings on the internet, read a few stories about Sheriff Tiraspol. Are they really the fairy tale some might believe? To have uh, a Moldovan team in a Champions League um, for the first time ever is a good news story for anybody <laughs> who believes that the competition should be spread and spread to more remote corners of the continent it's supposed to represent. Okay, so having said that, um, uh, <laughs> Sheriff Tiraspol's relationship with the Moldovan League is is peculiar. They utterly dominate it. I think nineteen of the last twenty one titles have been theirs. They also their 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 belonging to Moldova as a nation state is is in debate for a lot of people from Tiraspol um, because 
they come from a region of Moldova which likes to think it's uh, autonomous and behaves in a lot of autonomous ways and, and we gather from referendums and so on, would like to be an independent country, Transnistria. All of which is by the by. Um, but they are far better funded than any of the other clubs in that league. However, you know, they're not far better funded than than most clubs taking part in the Champions League groups group phase. You know, you go through the team and uh, you won't have heard of many of them. They're they're picked up from all over the world in in what is, you know, quite a quite an accomplished scouting network. You can pick at all sorts of uh, things that are that you might not like about Sheriff Tiraspol, but I think it's quite nice to have uh, a new club doing something a little bit special uh, in this competition. There are undoubtedly some, you know, some pretty shady uh, goings on in terms of their, the way they're financially backed. But I mean, <laughs> there is part of you that kind of looks at that and thinks, could you not say that about quite a lot of football clubs in in the Champions League now? And in fact, that you know, you see the domination of the Moldovan league. Real Madrid and Barcelona have won seventeen in the last twenty-two. In La Liga, I know that's two clubs, but they are so far ahead, and Real Madrid have had some questionable funding as well. So, above all, it was just a remarkable win, a, a huge shock, and and undoubtedly the the most embarrassing. Well, I would say probably the most without knowing deeply the, the Real Madrid's history, I would say probably their most embarrassing ever result. Really, yeah, big defeat. Um just in terms of the size, the magnitude of the result and a great moment for Sebastian Till scoring the winner as well. Got to celebrate it rightly too. So Real Madrid beaten and yeah, that was a shock. And the team that I say maybe wasn't a shock is Barcelona because they lost their opening match by three goals to nil. They were beaten once again last night in the Champions League by three goals to nil, this time away at Benfica. The boss, Ronald Koeman, is under extreme pressure. He's told us not to compare this Barcelona side to teams of old. Ian, is is that remark fair? Are the players good enough at Barcelona right now to be compared to any of their previous sides? Well, in some ways, he might be wise to say, actually, no, we should start comparing uh, these sort of these sort of nights with uh, with the recent past because Barcelona only win, only lose, sorry, by three goal margins in the Champions League these days against anybody <laughs> who's got any distinction. Uh, you know, this 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 goes back to being. Uh, knocked out by Roma in 2018, 3-0, having been well ahead in the first leg. Then there was the Liverpool comeback. Uh, well, there was the really big one by an 8-2 in the quarterfinals. Last season, what, Barca won PSG 4. I could go on. Uh, Juventus 3, Barcelona 0. And two weeks ago, Bayern, sorry, Barca 0. Bayern 3. So there we are. 3-0 is pretty much standard now for anybody who fancies playing this very, very <laughs> ragged Barcelona. But uh, yeah, clearly Koeman's right that we shouldn't we shouldn't compare them with Barcelona uh, a decade ago. Benfica fans weren't listening to that, I think it should be said on, on Wednesday, because they would chant Messi, Messi, Messi a lot of the time as they, as they <laughs> reveled in what was Benfica's first win over Barcelona since the 1961 season, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so you know, there's all this. It's there's, there's this massive pile up of um, of history, looking down and and sneering at uh, current Barcelona. Kuman is in an extremely difficult position. He knew that when he took the job, and his tasks were 
to ease the wage bill, which has gradually seen Luis Suarez, Lionel Messi and Antoine Griezmann leave. His one alibi really is that um, he will promote from within. He hasn't got much choice about that. He is criticised for the way way he's doing that. Some some muddled thinking, some confused formations, and 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 frankly, the some of the Barcelona homegrown talent is not being very helpful. Eric Garcia, who rejoined Barca from Manchester City in the summer, has now been sent off twice already this season. So it, you know the idea that that La Masia, the academy, will will produce all the solutions as it as it produced a lot of solutions and some absolutely brilliant football 10 years ago it's not so straightforward uh, it's very very hard to see a, a medium term recovery even for for barcelona and 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 it's it's very hard to see cumin still in a job in 2 weeks time in fact by the time oh, really listeners are enjoying this um you know they they may well be reading that uh, but Koeman is gone. They have a really difficult game this weekend at Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid featuring Suarez and Griezmann. So yeah, I, uh, I think uh, I think Koeman is not long of of Barcelona. On that point, I mean, who can come in and do anything with this squad of players? I mean, uh, uh, let's let's put it into this context. Is it more Kuman's fault than the, the talent in the squad right now? Because I look at their lineup last night and a couple of games that I've watched this season. I don't think the players are good enough. I'm not sure what manager is going to get great performances out of them. Am I being too easy on, on Ronald Kuman in that regard? And Ian, who would replace him? Somebody who isn't going to cost an awful lot of money in in salary, but most importantly, somebody who's prepared to do it. Um, if you are if you are a head coach who can pick and choose to a certain extent, you you would see that while the praise for resurrecting this Barcelona would be huge and and well-deserved, why would you go there now with obvious budgetary problems, an obvious gap between what the veterans have left, I'm talking about Piquet, Busquets, and when the talented younger players will reach the right stage of maturity it, it it's a very bad time but the list is at the moment uh xavi is obviously a popular choice the former captain who's working in qatar at the moment and doesn't seem that inclined to to jump or volunteer himself very loudly at the moment uh roberto martinez much loved in the premier league uh is also a candidate for the for the barcelona board um, if he can be prized away from Belgium, he's you know he's from the area, um, and he's you know he he talks a very good game in terms of style, which is always presentationally important at Barcelona. Otherwise, some sort of stopgap uh, from within. I think I think I think having a a candidate who knows the club or knows Catalonia is is probably important. And as I say, I'm afraid. Um, a candidate who isn't going to ask for huge amounts of money is probably quite important. Ian, tell us a little bit about the internal salary cap at four Spanish clubs in La Liga, because there have been changes this week and they're really interesting. Just having a quick look at them. Barcelona's salary cap has been slashed. I mean, massively slashed here um, by about 285 million euros a year. It stands 
now at 97 million euros. Compare that to, to the other clubs, you know, Real Madrid, well, it's the highest. It goes from 470 million euros to a whopping 739 million euros, a full 642 million more than their rivals Barcelona, but also more than the other sort of top four or five contenders for the Champions League combined. It's stunning, really. Just tell us how it all works and why it was brought in in Spain. Well, it's um, it's been going for for eight years, and it is it is a reform which um, the the Spanish league, uh, you know, who run it and and govern it, and whose clubs have signed up to it. I mean, you know, it's a, it was an agreement that the clubs make to avoid the dangers of bankruptcy or whatever. That clubs are subject to an audit to see what their projected income is going to be in the forthcoming year. That is then processed by the league and the league set a spending limit. Now, spending means transfer fees and salaries, essentially. An important issue now has been the closed stadiums during the the pandemic. The degree to which attendance is important varies a lot across clubs. And it's, it's probably more important overall in Spain than it is in the Premier League, which has enormous uh, television income um, and it's even more important for a club like Barcelona which has a huge stadium nearly a hundred thousand so that's been empty so that partly explains why they have dropped in terms of their uh, the money they have available only partly they've spent a huge amount of money on uh, players who have not worked out and therefore haven't been had any resale value their total debts are above a billion euros. So this is all factors in because those debts have to be serviced. So the league study all this and have decided that it is only safe for Barcelona to be allowed to spend just under a hundred million euros. Now, by the time you take into account some of the salaries there, they are obliged to pay. That leaves them very little money, and and in fact, that 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 will leave them scratching their heads about how they can find the money to pay off, say, Ronald Koeman, if and when they choose to to get rid of him. So it's that bad. Real Madrid are a better run club at the moment. They, like Barcelona, bring in a, a lot of money. And Real Madrid have also done better in terms of uh, the sales of players in the last few years. Uh, and they have, you know, they have a, a, a fabulous brand. They are now back in a renovated Bernabeu too. So they can confidently predict that um, income through turnstiles is going to go up. That's why they, they look so much better off than Barcelona. But this is more about, you know, the, the plummeting stock, as it were, of Barcelona um, than, than Real Madrid having been absolute whiz kids economically. It's going to be big decisions to make for Barcelona on the horizon, Ian. Thank you for for letting us know all about that. Um, Not long to go on the game podcast. Up next, though, we'll be talking about ex-players and whether they should become referees. Stay with us. It's been mooted this week that there will be a joint initiative with the PGMOL, the FA and the PFA to try and get ex-players at the end of their careers into refereeing. Now, we've got our very own ex-player here, Gregor Robertson, who's written a little bit about this this week, and I'm sure that application is going in soon. We might see him in the middle of a pitch somewhere. Um, Gregor, I've got to ask you, as an ex-player, what you think about the idea of going out there and being an official and whether it would really help the game? <laughs> well, there's two answers to that. The first is kind of, you know, footballers 
know exactly the kind of treatment that referees get because they're the ones who who, who give them it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure they're going to be, uh, you know, an influx of, of applications for this. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I don't know, I just think that there's all, it's not, this is not new. There's been a push for ex-players, recently retired players, to become referees for quite some time. And it's never really happened. I just think the the premise is fundamentally flawed, basically. It kind of groups players into a homogenous group. For example, Kevin De Bruyne's challenge in the Champions League the other night. From my point of view, I don't think that should have been anything more than a booking. Took a cursory glance at Twitter and I saw a former teammate of mine, Padre Amund, who you might know from uh, FA Cup exploits with Newport in recent years. Say, how on earth did Kevin De Bruyne not get away with get away with that one? So I think there's a, there's this kind of idea that footballers, because of their experience, would read the game differently and they would read it in a certain way. And it's not true. We, he's a striker as a defender. We have our own kind of bias. <laughs> and I also don't think that necessarily because you played the game means you read the game better. I think that's a fundamentally flawed premise. And I think I wrote about this, as I said, I wrote about this week and I, I even kind of branched that off into journalism and into coaching. I think it's quite something, you know, Martin Ziegler referenced in his in his uh, report, uh, Neil Warnock saying at the weekend, you didn't have to look far at the weekend for someone. <laughs> and you've, Neil Warnock's often a good place to look saying uh, that, you know, referees, ah, they've never played the game. You know, it's a kind of throwaway dismissive phrase that I've heard for 15 years in changing rooms and I've still heard since I've been on this side of the fence. And the more, I've, the longer I've been out of football, the more I've felt that that is a flawed premise. I think that just because you haven't played football doesn't mean you can't appreciate things and put yourself into a certain situation. I just think it's also slightly disrespectful to the kind of, you know, there's referees have to spe- have put in about a decade of practice and, and studying and work and experience to becoming referees. And we might be in a bit of a crisis at the moment in terms of officiating. I think a lot of that's to do with the rules rather than than the referees themselves. So I think, you know, football's good at trying to at trying to fast track former players into into associated roles, but it's a completely different job. And I don't think just because you played football would mean necessarily you were a good referee. I think AC Milan and Wolfsburg would probably agree with you on, on that one. Maybe they would actually want a change after the decisions this week. Ian, how do you see it? I, I think there's a, a degree to which having an ex-player who had played at the same level as the, the players he was officiating would earn some respect, which would probably be important for the image of the game and and possibly the confidence of, of referees generally. But I'm not sure how far beyond that it it would go. I, I you know, I'm inclined to to agree with Gregor on this as well, that that you know, is it that you get as many different sorts of ex players as you do different sorts of ex any other profession. And it's not necessarily a, an automatic track to expertise in, in making these very difficult decisions. Gregor, I, I personally want to see you out there, mate. I, I think <laughs> do your badge, do your courses, you know, and, and get fast tracked and let's see you, let's see you out there in the championship. Well, that's, a, that's another thing. You know, the level at which you play is another important factor. I played in lower league football primarily. So my experience of of football as a sport and how it's officiated is pretty different to the Premier League. So that's another thing you've got to say. You can't, you know, you have a very different experience to call upon. But I would also refute the fact that you would have immediate respect, as Ian suggests there. I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I think, I think referee, a lot of refereeing is about control and how you kind of, you hold yourself on the pitch. And I don't think having been a player or not really influences that. 
Greg, I'm just interested in, in asking, um, do, do you think do you think your opinion would be shared by most of your contemporaries who you played with? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I wrote this I wrote this piece yesterday, and as I say, I kind of I, I broadened it slightly into coaching because there's still an attitude within football that if you're a coach, an aspiring coach who wants to who hasn't had a professional career in football, you're somehow your understanding of the game is not quite as profound. And as, again, I said it the same in, in journalism. There are people who have studied the game for decades and you know, very astute observers of, of the game, but they can, their views can be dismissed because they're not being professionals. I think that's flawed. I think in any walk of life, it's how you can call upon those experiences and, how you, and it's a new skill. Refereeing is a different skill to playing football. Coaching is a different skill. You've got to be able to call on your experiences and have new a new skill to be able to teach it or to be able to control a game, to be able to interpret the rules properly. As I say, I think a big part of the, referee, the issue of refereeing at the moment is is the rules and the kind of this uncertainty that was created as well uh, because of VAR. Do you think ex-players would be good as VAR officials, maybe not out in the middle of the pitch, but better better in the, the booth in Stockley Park? Maybe, but I still think it sort of ironing out flaws in the rules is more important. And as I, again, I would hop back to just because you played football doesn't mean you can't have a stinking opinion about about a decision or something that happened on the pitch. I've seen it many times. I've seen it by coaches. I've seen it by teammates. They are from teammates. It's, uh, sure, you might understand, you, you might think that players understand the game better, but that doesn't mean that you could interpret an action or a phase of play better in real time. I like that. What better way to end the podcast? Equality in terms of stinking decisions. Both (laughs) ex-players, journalists on the game podcast with stinking opinions week after week. That's the way we like it. That's the way it should continue. Uh, Listen, thank you for listening to the game podcast this week. Remember, uh, you can download and you can subscribe right now. So go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself one month free of our award-winning journalism from both the Times and the Sunday Times. And if not, we will see you on Monday reacting to all the big stories in the Premier League this weekend. See you then. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.